0: Hey everybody, it's Eric Tornberg, co-founder partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm, and this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. We've come back to the main stage for a really special fireside chat with Mecca from First Round Capital a fantastic seed firm that we at Village work very closely with that have backed many of our companies uh, as they transition from pre-seed to seed or seed to early Series A. So we're really thrilled to have uh, First Round's newest GP join us. Mecca, welcome to the Village Global Accelerator kickoff.
1: Hey, Ben. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me here. And uh, it's been such a pleasure working with you all on uh, quite
0: a few different companies. So really happy to be here. So Mecca, we're going to cover a bunch of ground here as we talk about your background and what you look for in founders and some of the key trends in early stage tech. And for everyone uh, listening, be sure to post your questions You can in the Q&A tab if you have a structured question or if you just have a reaction to something that we're saying, you can put it in the chat room. And we'll allocate some, some time at the end of this conversation for you to come on stage and actually ask Mecca your question uh, directly. But Mecca, let's start with a little bit about your background, because you know the truth is there are a lot of VCs who are not particularly uh, interesting people or have interesting backgrounds you know it's sort of the I went to business school I worked in Goldman Sachs uh, or whatever private equity and I've, I've come into venture or even uh, I worked in an operating company now I'm now I'm in venture you've had a pretty different path uh, that makes you a pretty different sort of VC I assume in terms of how you think about the world of opportunity Talk about some of those highlights and how that has shaped the way that you think as a as a VC. Totally, and, and listen,
1: I can I can do the boring card with the, the best of them. I can talk about my time at Bain and, and HBS, but you know, for me, honestly, I never thought I'd be in venture capital. Um, I actually never even thought I'd live on the West Coast. I grew up in the Midwest, um, child of Nigerian immigrants, and my first job out of college was at the Cleveland Indians, doing sort of moneyball analysis. And I think that this, you know, as I reflect back on my career, I think there's. It's really easy to start to think about parallels of what I did before and how that um, sort of impacts my work here in, in, at First Round now. But you know, I think about working at a you know, I worked for the Cleveland Indians, so we were a small market club trying to compete against teams like the Yankees and the Mets and the Red Sox who had payroll that was 10x what we had. So the only way that we could be successful was thinking differently, trying something that other teams wouldn't try. And a lot of that was on sabermetrics, a lot of that was on quant- quantitative analysis, but no idea was too crazy. And I remember the, the GM at the time, Mark was always like, we're just looking for great ideas regardless of where they can't come from. And they should borderline on crazy. These, these ideas should be somewhat insane. And I think that sort of framework... Really helps as I'm thinking about talking to founders who some of the times you read the pitch deck and you're like, this seems wild and off the wall. But I think some of the best ideas are these wild and off the wall ones. And sometimes they're too wild and you're like, okay, this is, you know, uh, this doesn't work on planet Earth. Um, But I think a lot of my time at the Indians um, really primed myself to think in that way. And, you know, what I'm saying, The, the other interesting parallel right now, too, is um, you'll hear different advice on never get beat on price and and sort of like whether price matters in the early stage. But at the Indians, price did matter for the free agents, for the players we were trying to sign. At first round, I think, you know, if we find a very compelling founder, we try not to, to lose on price. But what I think um, this market is is teaching us is you can find really great founders sort of not in Silicon Valley, or you can find really great founders who aren't sort of out of, you know, XYZ hot company, and they have seven different term sheets. You know, I've actually invested in two companies that have been Canada based. And honestly, I feel so lucky to be in business with them. I think they are so far further than other similarly staged companies that might be based in San Francisco. And I feel like, you know, they feel like they got a great deal in in working with first round. I feel like we got a great deal in terms of sort of, you know, the ownership we're able to reach and the price we're able to do it at. And that's just looking slightly off the beaten path. Uh, And that's another thing that I think my time at the Indians really, uh, really set up for me. And then, you know, I think moving to Stripe, I spent sort of four years leading sales there. Um, I think the other way sort of I differ from other VCs is, you know, in the last year, I had an ARR target that I had to hit. Sort of when I think about my network, my network is still in operating seats at many of these sort of late stage growth, growth companies, early stage startups. When, when I'm working with founders and they want introductions to some of these companies, I can ping my friends and say, hey, you should look at this new tool that's you know really changing the sales stack. So that freshness of the operating experience, I think, is another thing that sort of you know really uh, sets me apart from a lot of other VCs
0: who are in the game right now. Yeah, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about, you know, lessons learned from Stripe and, and sort of go to market ideas that you might have for founders, because we have some great uh, founders in this community who I think would benefit from those insights. Before we get to that, more about your background as a, as a VC, you know, you've said you're not a thesis driven investor and that you back people. So talk to us about some of the founders you've been able that you've gotten conviction around and what's gotten them over the line for you.
1: So, you know, I think there are quite, quite a few different things that we look for. I think in terms of any investment, we're always looking at product, market, and team. But as early stage investors, we're really backing the founders. Like our bet is on, you know, that team of two people or that team of one. And, you know, there's, there's a few different things we look for. But, you know, one of them for me, it starts with customer focus. Has this person really, really either lived the problem themselves or talk to so many people that they're selling to that they understand the problem and can go head to head with that person and say, hey, I get it. I've talked to 20 other people who sit seen your same seat
0: and this is what I've heard from them. So just could you unpack that a little bit? Because it's such a great point and it's something that every founder listening needs to internalize, which is they need to be able to demonstrate to VCs that they're pitching that they are absolutely obsessed with customers. And of course, they need yeah. to be obsessed with customers, not just to pitch VCs, but to actually be successful in their business. But what does that sound like to you? Like, what, what? Because every entrepreneur who pitches a VC, right, is going to say, "Oh, I've talked to customers. Here's what customers want." But what does obsession sound like? What does it feel yeah. like? What are you looking for to know that they actually are obsessed?
1: Yeah, it can be different. One time, I had a founder send me like thirty pages of customer notes from like tons of different customers, and then a very distilled synopsis of like. This is the customer, this is the pain, this is what we're trying to build, this is what their life is like once we build this product. And you're just like, wow, like I didn't even need to take this pitch. If you just sent me this, like I got everything that I needed to, to know from here. I think sometimes it sounds like the politician who tells this like vignette story where they're like, you know, I was talking to Jimmy in the supermarket, but they tell the story with such insane detail, you understand, you know, that they get it. Um, I think sometimes founders are also building products that their customers don't even know exist. And being t- being able to articulate like, hey, we're building this thing and right now it's gonna sound off the wall, but this is why it's gonna make things so much better for our customers. This is what they currently do. This is what they'll do once they use our product. And this is how we're better in three or four or five different ways. And I think the important thing is like, I think these days, so many people are looking for shortcuts and you can't shortcut the customer research. Like if someone's like, if I ask someone sort of, you know, how many customers do they talk to? They're like four. It's like, no, that number should be very large. And you want to start to hear the same things over and over again. And um, I I really care about the work done and, and how much work was done and making sure that they're building the right solution for the
0: right customers. If you're a, if you're an early stage or if you're really a formation stage startup, right. You might not even have a product yet. You know, you maybe even have a a full blown website. You have no actual existing customers when it comes to doing this customer outreach and trying to do the market research and having these conversations, any tips for just getting in the door to have those customer development conversations, right? Like if, if you're trying to sell to mid to large company, can you reach out to someone and say, hey, I'm founding this company that doesn't exist yet. You've never heard of me. You've never heard of my company, but I'd love an hour of your time to pick your brain about your problems. That doesn't always generate a positive response. So how, for formation stage startups, how can they get in the door with prospective customers to develop the kind of knowledge that you are saying is so important?
1: Yeah, I think a couple of things. I think one, if you can't get in the door, you might be focused on the wrong problem. Like if someone tells you, like, I remember when my commute in San Francisco was horrible and it was like, you either took the 30 X or you were in an Uber pool that took you, you know, five or six different stops. If someone ever said, do you want to pay three bucks and get there 15 minutes faster? Like, of course I'm going to take that call. So I think there's this question of if you can't get in the room with your potential customer set, why is that? Like, make sure you're asking the questions. And sometimes, you know, if you're selling to an enterprise company and no one will take a startup seriously, maybe it gets harder, but then that's when you start to leverage connections. And I think the other thing too is founder market fit is really important. And if you're a founder in a market and you can't figure out a way to talk to your customers, like this is probably going to be a problem that you'll have down the line. So you've got to figure out somehow you got to figure out how you're going to get the door open. And even for formation stage companies, I think if they don't have
0: research calls with their target customer, like that would be a big red flag. So, so in other words, like as you reach out to a prospective customer and you articulate the problem area that you're interested in, if that problem area isn't exciting enough to prospective customer to want to get on the phone with you, maybe that's a sign that you're not actually focused on a problem that really matters. Uh, yeah. makes sense. Or
1: you're I, reaching out to the wrong person at that organization. Maybe you think it's the CMO, but actually it's one step down, or maybe you think, oh, this is a CTO problem, but it's actually an IC engineer problem. So you've got to figure out, am I targeting, am I getting in at the right stage
0: in the organization? It's a, it's a great point. And sometimes Uh, One has to be modest, I think, about who you can actually get in touch with. And so even if at the end of the day, you really want it's a CTO sale, you might only be able to talk to someone more junior in the organization. But that's a that's a place to start, right? Like, um, uh, get those reps in and and be open minded to the idea that there might be different sorts of people in the organization that will have a different perspective that could still be additive to you. Don't be overly obsessed with one particular job title. Uh, is, a, is, a, is something that we see. What, what did customer obsession look like uh, Mecca at Stripe and Mixpanel? And sort of what lessons did you take from your experiences there as an operator on this customer obsession point in particular, but also uh, across other fronts as well? Yeah.
1: So I think especially at Stripe, customer obsession was, it was from brand new, just first day in the, in, in the room at Stripe to John and Patrick Collison. Um, like I still remember they would have lunch on Fridays with users. They'd be like, hey, we wanna invite five or six users and just casually talk to them. We always wanna be close to the customer. Um, When we were thinking about new product releases, it started with the the public facing blog post of what we would be announcing to our customers. For any customer above a certain size who churned at Stripe, one of the execs would have an off-boarding call to understand specifically why they're churning and where we let those customers down every piece of the organization was tilted towards, are they customer obsessed? Will they obsess over making sure that the experience for our customers is perfect and that we're building products to actually solve real problems. And as someone running sales, like that was built into the DNA as well. We were very consultative. We're very customer focused. And, you know, we always talked about our sales cycle, teaching with every touch. We never wanted to spam customers. We wanted to make sure not only was the product experience great of using Stripe, but also sort of the buying process.
0: So sorry, did you say the phrase was teaching with every touch, meaning you wanted to teach the customer something every time you had a point of contact?
1: Yeah. So never to reach out with just the like, Hey, how are things going? Always, always, Anytime we had an interaction with our customers, we were looking to for them to leave somewhat more knowledgeable about the space or our product
0: or the solutions. Uh, I think we it's, were... a, it's a it's a good tactic, by the way. I think I think also applies to fundraising for founders that are reaching out to VCs and they're following up. Hey, did you get my note? Did you see the deck? What's next step? Like, include a little bit of an update in that follow up, right? Like, it can just be one line. Like, hey, also really really stoked that you know just closed our first customer this week or. Hey, just wanted to check in to see if you, you know, i And want to follow up to see if you got that email. If you want to chat on Wednesday and oh, by the way, we just hired, we just closed this amazing engineer. We're really excited about it. Like just continue to educate and persuade even in the tactical follow-up process.
1: Totally. And especially for, I mean, it, it makes such a difference. And I think the other thing that we're looking for, or at least that I'm looking for with founders is velocity. So if we're in touch over a, you know, a two week fundraising cycle, or maybe we're actually having conversations way out in advance and Each time we have some sort of interaction, you're telling me about some new candidate that you closed or something new that you understand of like why customers are getting excited. It it just like it starts to build that momentum. And I think it shows this forward progress that's so important at the early stages of the business.
0: I think and I think on the customer obsession point, it's interesting. You know, I think one challenge that we sometimes have as founders and operators is we forget what it's like to not be totally obsessed with our little corner of the universe so for example when i was at linkedin a huge blind spot i think a lot of people at linkedin have had probably still have is that you know the average linkedin member has like 14 connections every linkedin employee has like a thousand plus connections right and so if you're a linkedin employee you log on to linkedin.com your feed is packed with content and connection requests and all this kind of stuff but that's not actually the default experience for the vast majority of the members and it, or similarly, like if you're a Facebook employee, you probably have high speed internet, right? Because of where, of where you work, the money you have. But the vast majority of people who use Facebook every day don't do not, do not, use, do not don't connect with an internet speed that's as fast as the one that all employees use. And I think it was actually Facebook that like every Wednesday or something, they automatically throttled the site. So as to simulate what it's like on a slower internet speed, so the employees could remember, okay, let's, we had to build this actually for our overall user base, not just for employees. Yep. And I think sometimes as founders, we we are so in the weeds about the thing that we're thinking about that we have to work extra hard to get in front of customers who are only thinking about this problem for like 15 minutes a day or 15 minutes a week, not 80 hours a week. Yeah. And because otherwise the, we have this warped sense of everything and it infects. It, every piece of collateral, every outreach, our sense of prioritization. And so that's why talking to customers and being obsessed in this way is so critical just to get outside of our own head and, and get a sense of perspective. Right.
1: Yeah. And, and within customer obsession, I think segmentation is really important or ICPs are really important. I, I heard some fact that I was listening to a, a ro- about Roblox the other day that like 0.5% of users generate like 50% of their revenue. And imagine the conversation if you're building for that 0.5% versus everybody else. Or, you know, you hear about the 1990 rule at YouTube of like casual people who are just consuming content versus like creators versus super creators. Founders need to be understanding sort of as I think about this customer that I'm talking to, do they represent the one, the nine, or the ninety? Also, for getting to product market fit, am I going to focus on that one, that nine, or that ninety? And and I think that what you build might be very different or the feedback that you get is very different if you mix sort of the customer feedback. If you talk to a one and then you talk to a 90 and you're like, huh, they're saying very different things. Maybe they're saying very different things because they, they have very different needs and jobs to be done. So I think just having that extra level of nuance of understanding who your core customers are and where they fit in the buying cycle is really
0: important as you're sort of trying to really hone in on product market fit. So let's let's spend a few minutes and talk a little bit more about sales, because it's something, whether you're a consumer company, enterprise, uh, or just in life, you know, I have a, a lot of life's a sales call, every single interaction has some element of sales, first of all, professional, and you're really an expert here your Mecca. So let's talk about this for a couple of minutes, and then we'll shift and talk about fundraising and how our founders should think about pitching you and, and first round capital. But when it comes to sales, what advice do you have for founders who might not have a lot of ex, uh, you know, existing sales expertise as they begin to go to market and sell to enterprise? or if they're in a consumer context, you know, the, what lessons might hold true um, or how might, how extensible might this, how much advice be to sort of different sorts of businesses. But, you know, if an early stage founder is coming to you and saying, I I, I gotta get better at sales, what tips do you give them? What books do you tell them to read? What frameworks do you tell them to, to inhale and, and internalize? Yeah, the,
1: the funny thing about sales is like, one, sales can be taught. So my first job at Stripe was as an enterprise AE, and I'd never sold before. I'd worked for a baseball team. I'd been a consultant and I'd gone to business school. Uh, and then I was thrown into a quota carrying a role of like, hey, help us sell this product, help us move from you know product market fit in small startups to, to a, a market. And I think as a founder, you need to think about the unique strengths that you have. The unique strengths that I had as an AE at Stripe were just like adaptability, consultative skills. Like I knew the payment spaces, space well, and I would spend time understanding the customer's business and trying to figure out how Stripe might help. As a founder, I think... You probably have a couple of things in your favor one you probably have this passion for the problem you've probably or hopefully talked to tons of other customers who have this problem so you've seen how they might solve it so all of a sudden you're a little bit of a subject matter expert and coming into these sales conversations you can say hey would you like to know what seven of your your competitors are doing to solve this one problem like that's so valuable. Or as the founder, like you're building the roadmap of your customer, like bring that excitement to the, to the call that you're having of like, I want to build this. And then I want to build this and I want to build this and I want to learn from you. And I want, I want my company to solve your unique problems and build for you.
0: Well, By the way, just to add on that, like, I think I always remember this uh, and I was telling some founders this the other day, maybe years ago, I watched this this um, interview with Larry Ellison of Oracle, when he was saying that when we go into hospitals and implement our ERP, we tell the hospitals to change the way they run their business to accommodate our software. <laughs> we don't we don't customize our software; they change their business processes because we have worked with so many hospitals around the world. We actually have a better sense for what best practice looks like than the individual hospital does because every hospital is in their own little silo. And similarly, as a founder. As any person in sales, right, we have the benefit of talking to all these different businesses and gathering all these different nuggets. And when you're talking to a particular prospect, a huge, an easy way to add value is to share the nuggets you've learned from their peers. Because most of these customers are not actually out networking with all of their industry peers or their competitors. But if you're talking to a company, you can say, oh, well, you know, I've talked to six of your peer companies. Here's how they're thinking about it that's catnip for them, right? They're really interested in learn in, and in, in learning that kind of stuff. So it's an easy way to add value.
1: And that goes back to my, th- the teach with every touch phrase. Like, you know, sometimes if you're having a hard time getting a meeting, imagine if you drop one of these nuggets that is telling, you know, your persona, how seven of their other companies are solving this problem, like that oftentimes will get them on the phone and their ears perked up of like, oh, wow, okay, am I missing something? Like, I should talk to this person. So founders, even if they don't have a sales background, like you've got a lot of unique advantages, that passion for the problem, the knowledge of the space, the innovation story that you can use in, in early stage selling. And then I think the other thing too, is go into an understanding that you know, this is a reps game. This is like being a, a great long distance runner where I think all you need to do is like keep running, run more, run farther, every day get 1% better. So, you know, what I always tried to do with my early calls was I would figure out jot down two or three things that I feel like I did well and two or three things that didn't go well. And then what I learned in the call. And if you just take this, like trust the process, get a little bit better with every call, like I guarantee you, you'll do a great job. And also as a founder, understand that, you're not going to be in the sales role forever. You want to make sure that you get some level of understanding what the problem is, who the core customer is, and what the buying process looks like. You do that a few times, and then you say, "Hey, okay, I feel like this is the area that we need to be now. Let me go find somebody who can sort of start to build the engine around this. You know, this initial process that I've started to identify."
0: Yeah, it's 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 a great transition to fundraising because, of course, you know, raising money for your startup is also a sales process, and we often tell our founders in Village, you know, to to think about the feedback that you got from the VC and to potentially incorporate it into your next pitch, or at least reflect on how pitch number one went before you get to pitch number two. You're gonna you're gonna be doing dozens and dozens of pitches. Don't just robotically say the same thing over and over again if in fact you're learning some things that should cause you to iterate your approach as you as you make contact with reality when founders come and pitch you on their seed round what are some of the common mistakes you see them make
1: oh man there's a few different ones so you know i, I think the one that i struggle the most with is the the person who has all the answers i think about a pitch as a truth seeking session like we're investing very early and there's so much that is not not yet known. And the founder who just has every single answer is a red flag. And the person who says, you know what, I'm not a hundred percent sure about this. Here are some hunches that I might have, or let me get back to you with that answer. Like I would, you know, I'll back that person a hundred times over because I know that they're actually looking for the right answer that we're going to have this dynamic of, you know, as an investor, like, I don't want you to just hide tell me the good stuff and hide the bad stuff. Like I want the truth and I'm going to, and maybe this is just me. Like I'm always going to be like, what you see is what you get. And I tell people sort of what I'm thinking at at all times. And I just want to work with founders who have, who feel like, okay, there's things that I'm really, really confident on and there's some other things that I don't know the answer to. Or like when you ask a founder of like, you know, what's the biggest risk to this business, or what are you most worried about? And it's like one of those answers where someone's like, oh, I'm not worried about anything. Or like if I just do what I'm supposed to do, like this is gonna be huge. Like, no, there's gotta be something that you you need to de-risk in the business. So I think that's that's something that's really important. Um, so,
0: so just to pause there, like I think it's I think it's a great point. It's a subtle Idea in terms of how it manifests, because both things are true. I mean, on the one hand, you want somebody who's confident, uh, who has a kind of swagger that they can take on the world and win. I mean, this is an underdog business, and you don't you don't win as an underdog if you cower in fear and and insecurity. So, on the one hand, I think as VCs we're looking right for founders who have a sort of self confidence and a vision and a and a conviction. That is, you know, genuinely inspiring. And by the way, what that also means is you don't just just because a VC says X doesn't mean you just that X is the truth, right? I think founders that push back on VC feedback can be a very attractive trait yes. in founders. But at the same time, I think this is a really profound idea, Mecca, that everyone should think about, which is you don't have to have all the answers. It's okay to have uncertainties. It's okay to acknowledge that there are risks. And I think the 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 subtlety here is basically. Which are the things where it's okay to not have an answer, and which are the things where it's not okay? Because, for example, if the question is, "Hey, so you know, what, what do you think that what, what do you think of these three competitors in your space and what they're up to?" and if the founder says, "Oh, I'm ne- I actually have never heard of those companies," wait, what are those companies? If the VC is teaching you about the competitive space, that's not a good sign. But talking about, you know, if the VC asks, hey, in, you know, three years, do you think this is more bottoms up sell or top down sell? And you say, look, I don't know, actually, it could go both ways, it sort of depends what we learn for the next year. That's a perfectly acceptable answer to that sort of question.
1: Yep. that I mean, I think you you hit it right on the nail. There are questions you have to have answers to. And there are a bunch of questions that you don't need to have answers to. But the, for me, the key differentiation is on one of those answers where you don't have the answer and you don't have it when you just make something up that is clearly wrong, or this happens with competitors too. I'm like, I feel like this competitor has a very similar product. And and when someone's just like, no, that's not the case, like this happened the other day and I went, spent some time, Google it, and I was like, okay, the founder either just doesn't know or they lied to me. Both of them are both huge red flags. I'm like,
0: I'm out. Well, the, yeah, I'm it's funny because it. the competition point's interesting because this, this gets back to the previous idea of being too in the weeds. This often happens where someone will say, hey, this seems like this other company is competitive. And the founder says, oh, no, they're definitely not competitive for these 60 super microscopic reasons. It's different. And you're like, zoom out, put yourself in the shoes of the customer. Big picture, they're going to see these as the same sort of product. So just because you see all these minute differences, the fact that like the squint test might suggest that the the buyer is going to lump you and this competitor in the same category. So you need to have a really crisp way of explaining why you're different.
1: Yeah. And and the, the other thing too, is like integrity, truth seeking, honesty. It's so important to me. And sometimes you hear it in the nuance of just like the founding story. And I know there's this like meme in Silicon Valley that like, there's supposed to be this perfect founding story of like, Oh, I felt this pain firsthand. And, and, you know, many times people shy away from the person who's like looking for a problem to solve. And, you know, I think partially rightfully so, but when people fabricate these founding stories and you're like, no, 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 there's no way that's actually what happened. Like that's just such a, a turn off a red flag where I'm like, okay, Now that I know that you lied about this, what else in this deck do I need to worry about is also complete fabrication. So I just think, man, just being honest in yourself is so important in this process. Like we're in a people-driven process. We're investing in you. So like
0: how you show up, how you operate, what others say about working
1: with you is is really, really
0: important. How do you think about, well, two thoughts. Number one, I agree with you on don't, don't lie about your founding story. At the same time, I'm also sometimes surprised by how few founders sometimes have a really tidy and crisp way of discussing the founding story. Like it's an obvious question asked, which is how do you come up with the idea? How did you and your co-founders meet? There should be a pretty nice vignette to capture that efficiently in the pitch and that can be rehearsed and practiced. It should be true for sure, but like it's it's a question you will get. How do you think, though, Mecca, about this, 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 this phenomenon in startup land and especially in this market and the and the heat and intensity around it, where Everybody's crushing it. Everyone's up and to the right. The enthusiasm is relentless. You know, w- w- you know, it, 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 um, when founders I think interface with a VC, they're inclining towards just being positive about everything. Like, you know, say say, say the founder pitches you, and you're like, "Hey, it's the timing's not right. Let's talk again at your not, you know, when you're raising your full institutional seed round." And you sort of check in every couple months, and they're just giving you good news. I don't think that buys them very much credibility, and I think it's I think what you're sort of pointing at in terms of truth telling is, look, there's always going to be challenges in your startup. And so acknowledge where there have been struggle. And for us at Village, what we're always keen on is, what's the lesson? What's the pace of learning here? So it's okay to have fails, okay to have struggled. What have you learned? Because the velocity of learning is a great indicator of long-term success.
1: Yeah. And I I think part of this is the part of Silicon Valley culture where it sounds like all of these successful companies were up and to the right with no problems. But that's that's not necessarily the case. I remember early on in Stripe, one of the days where I think we were three months before Black Friday, which was like the biggest shopping day for Stripe. And I remember someone on one of our engineering teams said, if Black Friday happened today, Stripe will go down because sort of like, <laughs> we're, we're not resilient enough. And I remember being like, holy crap, what company did I join? Like, this is going to be a company ending type event. But one, I appreciated the like, the willingness to understand like, hey, we've got this big problem that we have to solve. We feel like we're going to solve it, but right now it is unsolved. And I think asking founders, hey, what are some of the roadblocks that have tripped you up? Or like you probably zig to get to where you're here. I would love to hear about some of those stories and some of, some of those learnings. And startups are going to be a ton of failure. There's going to be a, a, a ton of problems that you're going to have. And if someone doesn't have any of those experiences or isn't comfortable sharing them,
0: Again, that, that's that's an area where I, I worry. How should founders determine how much money to raise in their seed round?
1: You know, I think today people have two choices. There's, there's founders or there's two archetypes. There's founders who raise what they need to get to for the next milestone, and there's others who raise as much as they can raise. I don't, you know, I think there have been successful founders who've done both. Um, me personally, I think one, you need to think about when you raise a certain amount of money, you are setting yourself on a certain treadmill that you have to hit in order to continue to be on and up in the, up in the right trajectory. Because if you, the second you raise a, a bridge or a seat extension or whatever, like I think it, it gets hard to recruit. It gets hard to continue that that positive momentum. So I think there's this balance of you want to make sure you have enough cash to get to where you want to get. You want to make sure that you have a cushion. So if you say, all right, the next, I'm going to pick up my head for a series A when I reach this point, I think I need this much money. Definitely add a cushion so that, so you make sure that you can always raise with an additional six months of runway. Like You don't want to get down to the, to the um, bitter end. But what I think is most important, especially early on, is partnering with the right partner at the right firm, who's going to get their hands dirty and really help you, and really want to win? And I think if you do that, that puts your your business in the best position to be successful. Versus just like raising the most amount of money that you can raise, because you know, oftentimes I see people sort of like not really getting the best fit either from a firm or from a partner because they're optimizing just on uh, the the dollars raised.
0: Yeah. And and it's sort of two thoughts I'd add. One is, I think it's okay for founders to sometimes have multiple plans. Like, you know, our plan is to raise a million and a half dollar seed round. You know, if we raised three and a half, here's what we do with it. But there's sort of like, that's sort of a, you know, things are going really well in a process and and VCs can sometimes push to expand round size, especially multi-stage firms that are looking to write larger checks. It's okay to sort of say like, yeah, here's, we know what we would do with the cash if we raised it, but we're really focused, you know, on the million and a half dollar round or whatever. I think the other thing, Mecca, you point to is fit with investors. I think this is really key for all founders to understand, which is know the investor that you're pitching, know their ideal check size, ownership, and so on. Because if you're trying to raise a $300,000 sort of angel round, that's probably not a fit for first round capital. Um, if you're trying to raise a $15 million Series B, that's not a fit for first round capital. What is a fit for first round? <laughs> Generally speaking, And yeah. know there always could be exceptions but what's a typical round size of the founders that you, you all tend to back? And what's a typical sort of valuation range uh, for your pre-seed or seed investing?
1: It's crazy because typical these days, one, it's you know I've only been at first round for coming up on a year and that's changed in the year of what is sort of typical on a valuation side. But at first round, what I'll say is we built this firm to really focus on the first zero to three years of a company's existence. And that's usually a, a pre-seed, seed, or a series A. I'd say most of the work we do is a, are, are in seed. Let's say today that's somewhere between a 3 and $5 million seed round. And, you know, these valuations on a post-money standpoint sometimes are still some, once in a while saying things that are at $15 million, but also seeing things as, as big as, you know, 50 and C and series A, it's all kind of blending together. But essentially what we say is like, we want to be there for the early part of the journey. We're really focused on product market fit, getting to your first million or so of revenue and really thinking about the early stage challenges that a zero to 10 person team team has. So I think first round sort of taps out once you've raised more than, you know, two to three or $4 million. Um, and, and we're really focused on the earliest of stage customers. And it's all we do. All we obsess on is sort of zero to three years, um, early product market fist, first for few million dollars in revenue um, companies.
0: Gotcha. Okay. And if y'all have other questions on pitching first round or fundraising, you can put them in the chat. But let's bring Michelle uh, up on stage and go back a little bit topically to sales and how companies with really long sales cycles potentially can adapt. So uh, Mustafa, let's bring Michelle on stage.
1: Hi, uh, I'm Michelle Wu, the CEO and co-founder of Nyquist Data. We're building the Google or Bloomberg for life science. Uh, we're solving the data problem for life science companies. My question is like, how to create an effective feedback loop with big enterprise clients when it normally takes two to three months to get on their calendar. And uh, talk to seven decision makers and navigate the, uh, like uh, the a very complex uh, organization. Thank you. Nice to meet you, Michelle. I think that's a great question. Um, one enterprise sales is really hard. Um, <laughs> so, best of luck. Um, but what I'd say is, is one, I would try to multi-thread your conversations. One. In each company, I would try to have multiple conversations. With enterprise companies, oftentimes you need to get a whole committee to approve. Um, So make sure you're really thinking about all of the different threads that you need to line up in in order to make a sale. And I think the other thing is win rates at enterprise tend to be much lower. So I think you need to have multiple conversations going at the same time, especially since... Mm -hmm. They'll go, they'll go quiet for two weeks while they're looking at, at sort of your SOC 1 and SOC 2 certification or, or, or you know, things just get busy at the organization. So being able to have 20 conversations going at once where things heat up, I think, can help. The other piece I would think about is... By the way, think- Becca,
0: just to, to jump in for a sec, I think the multi, that's a great piece of advice and probably also applies when pitching venture firms too, right? The multi thread idea of... Most venture firms do operate as teams or there's a team dynamic or a partnership committee. And so, you know, socializing your idea or getting to know multiple people at a firm, uh, even if you have one partner who you ultimately work closely with, that can be helpful just to get the get the deal done.
1: Yeah. The other thing that I would emphasize is is building what's called like a buyer's process. Figure out what the three to four steps are in the process and then try to optimize each of those. So there may be like an early discovery piece and it's like, okay, what did I do well in that discovery call? There may be a sort of validating fit or contracting piece and trying to extract pieces of feedback from each of the various stages in the buyer's process, I think can help you just iterate iterate as you go forward. Gotcha. So first, like a multi-thread conversation. And second, like, uh, continue optimize, design the buyer journey and optimize each steps. Yeah, and cu- cut it into digestible pieces. If you lose a company at the very end and maybe you lose on price, doesn't mean mm-hmm. there wasn't a lot to learn from the early stage process of getting that far. So make sure you've cut your buying process into different steps and take learnings and, and sort of like improve the process slowly on each each piece of that funnel.
0: Okay, thank you so much. It's great advice. Yeah, th- th- then thanks, Michelle. And if I can just follow up on on the multi-thread point a little bit, just how do you how do you manage the organizational politics of not upsetting, you know, your your champion, right? So sometimes in my own experience, selling into companies uh, or any type of sales, like there's this idea of you have your internal champion, you're trying to build sort of support from other people in the organization, but you also don't want to step on people's toes or sort of undermine different political alliances that are sometimes hard to perceive from the outside.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'll never go behind the champions back
0: there. They're a champion
1: for a reason. So I think early on when you realize that there could be something here, I try to outline what this looks like if everything goes well. It says, Hey, when do you want a solution in place by let's work backwards. And then you just lay out what we normally see is we need these conversations with legal. We need these conversations with procurement, these conversations with finance. Can you help identify who these people are that we'll need to talk to? Hey, okay. And if you want to buy in the next six months, it probably makes sense for me to start having these conversations with this group. Do you mind seeing up a warm introduction? So um, again, for for me and all the organizations I've been a part of, like no slimy sales tactics. It's very, what you see is what you get. This is what the process looks like. We have this process because we want to help you sort of get a solution in place by when you need it for. And in our experience, this is what it takes in order to get there.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. And, and just tactically as well, I, I uh, always advise folks to just be communicative about who else in the organization you've already talked to or are talking to. That also applies in venture, by the way. Like it's amazing the number of people who will perhaps send me an email and not reference the fact that they've been in touch with someone else on Village, right? And it just creates hassle on our side to have to sort through, wait, has someone already been in touch with this person? Did someone meet them? So just be transparent about, Hey, I had a great conversation last week with your colleague Jane Doe. And I also you know, wanted to reach out and introduce myself, say hello, that kind of thing. How should founders think about revenue in the early days? Any sort of rules of thumb? Uh, how important is it for someone like you, if you're going to lead a seed round In a company? Are you looking for revenue uh, or does a little bit of revenue screw up a a bad story?
1: I, I think it really depends on what they're trying to raise, at what valuation and what stage they're in. Like, you know, if you've been at this, if this is more of a series A, you've been at this for three years and you've got zero revenue and you, you know, you've got a bunch of customers churning, I'm probably worried. But for the most part, like, what we're looking for is value and value can sometimes value you know a a conduit to that is revenue but other times it's just like these are what our customers are saying or this is the product usage that you're seeing or this is the retention that we're seeing in folks um in customers that we're working with so you know i've invested in companies with zero revenue i've invested in in a company that has seven million dollars in arr and you know revenue like it's great if you have a ton of revenue and it's sticky and it's expanding, but it's also not a necessity for first round to, to lean in, especially because we'll invest in two people in a deck who just left their company a month ago or haven't even actually left the company that, uh, <laughs> that they're at. So, uh, you know, we go up and down the scale.
0: That's useful. Yeah. I mean, I, and we often will tell our founders, you're either selling a concept story or a data story. The concept story is the vision, the dream. There is no data yet. The data story is, hey, look at our progress. And the challenge is when you start to generate data, the data better be good because bad data is worse than no data at all in terms of generating momentum in a pitch. And so just know what kind of pitch you're doing. And if it's data story, then tell the data story in a really compelling way. And of course, make sure you have as great as data as possible.
1: Yeah, and and I mean, going back to some of this advice, like whether you have revenue or not, you need a traction slide. And traction can just be like, it can be revenue. You can say, hey, this, this is the ARR, these are the sexy logos. It can be these are our design partners who are really intrigued by our idea and have validated that the pain point is real. Or these are the customer te- testimonials. Like, but please, please have a slide that explains like, where you are in the process and you know something that says, "I think I'm on to something, that this business is going to be, you know big.
0: Yeah, totally. Uh, I love the idea. Of everyone should have a traction slide in your deck, even if you don't have that. Uh, don't have revenue. Maybe a final question for you, Mecca. Um, just going all the way back to where we started this conversation. You talked about your your career at the Cleveland Indians, doing you know scouting and talent analysis, uh, and the Moneyball framework. And you know, I think about that as finding underrated gems or looking for characteristics in people that others might miss. What are a couple of the characteristics and founders that you think might be underrated that other VCs might not look for, but that you think can really be sort of special attributes that could predict success?
1: Yeah, you know, I don't know that it's underrated, but I look for people who just don't want to lose, who want to win, who have this intense customer focus and who will run through brick walls to win. And that looks very that can look very different. Sometimes you have just the really quiet person who you know is going to be the hustler. Other times you have the person who's beating their chest and you know screams from the mountaintop like, I I want to win, but you really see it in how they show up and how they behave and how much research they've done on the competitive space and how much customer research that they've done and how quickly they're moving, velocity, heat-seeking missiles. Like That's what I'm looking for is the founder who is just going to make it work. And the person who you know, like, is in it for the long haul and wants, you know, wants to take this thing to the finish line. And there's no one way for that to show up. And I think it's just something that you, it's a little bit of the art in what we do here, which is you can try to have a framework for how you evaluate um, a pitch. You can have different questions you ask different founders, but, there's just this X factor that I think the best founders have that show up in, in, in very different ways. And you know, I think that's the other piece of advice I'd leave for folks. is like, show up as your full self to these pitches. Like, there's not an archetype that we're looking for. Just be who you are. Um, be human. Be authentic. Be truth-seeking. And I think, like, that – you wouldn't imagine how much that goes when you're just like, oh, wow, that was such a refreshing conversation of just like one-to-one, no BS, like I really enjoyed it. And, and that's that's the other thing is like you as a founder, you get to choose who you work with. Myself as a VC, we get to choose who we work with. And I think, you know, life is too short with people to work with people that you don't enjoy spending time with.
0: Well, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a great point. And, you know, just on the, the refuse to lose competitive nature, I think for founders, you know, you're pitching Mecca, it probably wouldn't hurt to also just be super explicit about where you stand on these sorts of issues, right? There is an art to this for sure, but also one can be explicit and say, you know, I actually had a founder tell me this recently. They said, I'm an extremely competitive person. Uh, I had another founder say, you might believe because I'm nerdy and quiet that I lack confidence, but in fact, I'm supremely self-confident that we're going to take over this industry. You know, just literally saying the words in that way, can be effective to communicate this core idea. So it can come through in indirect and direct ways. But if you're a founder and you're thinking to yourself, as you're listening to this, that's me, I'm competitive. I refuse to lose. Tell that to the VC when you're pitching them.
1: I love that. I mean, I tell founders I'm a nobody in venture and I, I need to make sure that you tell everyone working with Mecca and working with first round is the best thing they ever did. That's how, you know, I'm going to fucking hustle my ass off for you. Like, I worked in a professional sports context where the only thing that matters was wins and losses. Like, this is who I am. And I will say that to founders as they're trying to decide between a term sheet at first round and a term sheet at Sequoia is the difference between me and that person at Sequoia is I, you know, I don't have this track record of 100 successes. So I need to be up late at night making sure that, like, I'm doing everything that I can to make sure that you've that I, first round in myself is a small competitive advantage for you.
0: Mecca, First Round Capital, really appreciate your time. Thanks for being part of the village. And we're excited for all of our companies to pitch you in in the months ahead. Thanks, Mecca. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.